0: Chapter sixty-one of Romola. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil chenever Romola by George Eliot. Chapter sixty-one. Drifting away. On the eighth day from that memorable night, Romola was standing on the brink of the Mediterranean watching the gentle summer pulse of the sea just above what was then the little fishing village of Viareggio. Again she had fled from Florence, and this time no arresting voice had called her back. Again she wore the gray religious dress, and this time, in her heart-sickness, she did not care that it was a disguise. A new rebellion had risen within her, a new despair. Why should she care about wearing one badge more than another, or about being called by her own name? She despaired of finding any consistent duty belonging to that name. What force was there to create for her that supremely hallowed motive which men call duty but which can have no inward constraining existence save through some form of believing love? The bonds of all strong affection were snapped, in her marriage, the highest bond of all, she had ceased to see the mystic union which is its own guarantee of indissolubleness, had ceased even to see the obligation of a voluntary pledge. Had she not proved that the things to which she had pledged herself were impossible? The impulse to set herself free had risen again with overmastering force, yet the freedom could only be an exchange of calamity. There is no compensation for the woman who feels that the chief relation of her life has been no more than a mistake. She has lost her crown. The deepest secret of human blessedness has half-whispered itself to her, and then forever passed her by. And now Romola's best support under that supreme woman's sorrow had slipped away from her, the vision of any great purpose, any end of existence which could ennoble endurance and exalt the common deeds of a dusty life with divine ardors was utterly eclipsed for her now by the sense of a confusion in human things which made all effort a mere dragging at tangled threads. All fellowship, either for resistance or advocacy, mere unfairness and exclusiveness. What, after all, was the man who had represented for her the highest heroism? The heroism not of hard, self-contained endurance, but of willing, self-offering love? What was the cause he was struggling for? Romola had lost her trust in Savonarola, had lost that fervor of admiration which had made her unmindful of his aberrations, and attentive only to the grand curve of his orbit, and now that her keen feeling for her godfather had thrown into her antagonism with the frate, she saw all the repulsive and inconsistent details in his teaching with a painful lucidity which exaggerated their proportions. In the bitterness of her disappointment she said that his striving after the renovation of the church and the world was a striving after a mere name which told no more than the title of a book a name that had come to mean practically the measures that would strengthen his own position in Florence, nay, often questionable deeds and words, for the sake of saving his influence from suffering by his own errors. And that political reform which had once made a new interest in her life seemed now to reduce itself to narrow devices for the safety of Florence in contemptible contradiction with the alternating professions of blind trust in the divine care it was inevitable that she should judge the frate unfairly on a question of individual suffering at which she looked with the eyes of personal tenderness and he with the eyes of theoretic conviction in that declaration of his that the cause of his party was the cause of god's kingdom she heard only the ring of egoism perhaps such words have rarely been uttered without that meagre ring in them yet they are the implicit formula of all energetic belief and if such energetic belief pursuing a grand and remote end is often in danger of becoming a demon worship in which the votary lets his son and daughter pass through the fire with a readiness that hardly looks like sacrifice tender feeling for the nearest has its danger too and is apt to be timid and skeptical toward the larger aims without which life cannot rise into religion in this way poor romola was being blinded by her tears no one who has ever known what it is thus to lose faith in a fellow man whom he has profoundly loved and reverenced will lightly say that the shock can leave the faith in the invisible goodness unshaken with the sinking of high human trust The dignity of life sinks too. We cease to believe in our own better self, since that also is part of the common nature which is degraded in our thought, and all the finer impulses of the soul are dulled. Romola felt even the springs of her once active pity drying up, and leaving her to barren egoistic complaining. Had not she had her sorrows too? And few had cared for her, while she had cared for many. She had done enough. She had striven after the impossible, and was weary of this stifling, crowded life. She longed for that repose and mere sensation which she had sometimes dreamed of in the sultry afternoons of her early girlhood, when she had fancied herself floating, naiad like in the waters. The clear waves seemed to invite her. She wished she could lie down to sleep on them and pass from sleep into death. But Romola could not directly seek death. The fullness of young life in her forbade that. She could only wish that death would come. At the spot where she had paused there was a deep bend in the shore, and a small boat with a sail was moored there. In her longing to glide over the waters that were getting golden with the level sun-rays, she thought of a story which had been one of the things she had loved to dwell on in Boccaccio when her father fell asleep and she glided from her stool to sit on the floor and read the Decameron. It was the story of that fair Gostanza, who, in her lovelornness, desired to live no longer, but not having the courage to attack her young life, had put herself into a boat and pushed off to sea. Then lying down in the boat had wrapped her mantle round her head, hoping to be wrecked, so that her fear would be helpless to flee from death. The memory had remained a mere thought in Romola's mind, without budding into any distinct wish, but now as she paused again in her walking to and fro, she saw, gliding black against the red gold, another boat with one man in it, making towards the bend where the first and smaller boat was moored. Walking on again, she at length saw the man land, pull his boat ashore, and begin to unload something from it. He was perhaps the owner of the smaller boat, also. He would be going away soon, and her opportunity would be gone with him, her opportunity of buying that smaller boat. She had not yet admitted to herself that she meant to use it, but she felt a sudden eagerness to secure the possibility of using it which disclosed the half-unconscious growth of a thought into a desire. Is that little boat yours, also? she said to the fisherman who had looked up, a little startled, by the tall grey figure, and had made a reverence to this holy sister wandering thus mysteriously in the evening solitude. It was his boat, an old one, hardly seaworthy, yet worth repairing to any man who would buy it. By the blessing of San Antonio, whose chapel was in the village yonder, his fishing had prospered, and he now had a better boat, which had once been Gianni's, who died." but he had not yet sold the old one. Romola asked him how much it was worth, and then, while he was busy, thrust the price into a little satchel lying on the ground and containing the remnant of his dinner. After that she watched him furling his sail, and asked him how he should set it if he wanted to go out to sea, and then, pacing up and down again, waited to see him depart. The imagination of herself gliding away in that boat on the darkening waters was growing more and more into a longing, as the thought of a cool brook in sultriness becomes a painful thirst, to be freed from the burden of choice when all motive was bruised, to commit herself sleeping to destiny which would either bring death or else new necessities that might rouse a new life in her it was a thought that beckoned her the more because the soft evening air made her long to rest in the still solitude instead of going back to the noise and heat of the village at last the slow fisherman had gathered up all his movables and was walking away soon the gold was shrinking and getting duskier in sea and sky and there was no living thing in sight no sound but the lulling monotony of the lapping waves In this sea there was no tide that would help to carry her away if she waited for its ebb, but Romola thought the breeze from the land was rising a little. She got into the boat, unfurled the sail, and fastened it as she had learned in that first brief lesson. She saw that it caught the light breeze, and this was all she cared for. Then she loosed the boat from its moorings, and tried to urge it with an oar till she was far out from the land till the sea was dark even to the west, and the stars were disclosing themselves like a palpitating life over the wide heavens. Resting at last, she threw back her cowl, and, taking off the kerchief underneath, which confined her hair, she doubled them both under her head for a pillow on one of the boat's ribs. The fair head was still very young, and could bear a hard pillow. And so she lay, with the soft night air breathing on her while she glided on the water and watched the deepening quiet of the sky. She was alone now. She had freed herself from all claims. She had freed herself even from that burden of choice which presses with heavier and heavier weight when claims have loosed their guiding hold. Had she found anything like the dream of her girlhood? No. Memories hung upon her like the weight of broken wings that could never be lifted. Memories of human sympathy which even in its pains leaves a thirst that the great mother has no milk to still. Romola felt orphaned in those wide spaces of sea and sky. She read no message of love for her in that far-off symbolic writing of the heavens, and with a great sob she wished that she might be gliding into death. She drew the cowl over her head again and covered her face choosing darkness rather than the light of the stars, which seemed to her like the hard light of eyes that looked at her without seeing her. Presently she felt that she was in the grave, but not resting there. She was touching the hands of the beloved dead beside her, and trying to wake them. End of chapter 61